0: You're listening to John Anderson Direct, featuring Dr. Nicholas Eberstadt.
1: My guest today is Nicholas Eberstadt. He holds the Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute, where he researches and writes extensively on demographics and economic development in a range of different geographies. His titles include The poverty of the poverty rate in 2008, Russia's peacetime demographic crisis, 2010, and most recently in 2022, Men Without Work, America's Invisible Crisis, updated uh, post-COVID. Nicholas has a PhD in political economy and government, and he holds a Master of Science from the London School of Economics. In 2012, he was awarded the prestigious Bradley Prize in America and that award recognises extraordinary talent and dedication to American exceptionalism. And I think our conversation will reveal just how capable Nicholas's mind actually is. Nicholas, thanks so much for joining us and it's great to see you again. Uh, For our listeners and viewers, uh, we recently dined together in Sydney. Uh, And uh, we're here to talk uh, about your more recent work, and talking of work, can you kick us off by saying that we often complain about work, we see it as more of a curse than a blessing. In reality, surely work is good for us, and for men in particular, given that we're going to be talking about an astonishing number of people, men, who are not working. Why is work good for us?
0: John, it's wonderful to see you again. Thank you for inviting me to share this discussion with you. Uh, Well, of course, uh, I'm not going to tell you that money doesn't matter because it does, but there's so much more to work than just the paycheck, important as that is. Money, I mean, work uh, is a service to other people that helps complete yourself, that helps Uh, one's own uh, fulfillment, one's own attainment, uh, one's own satisfaction. Uh, It's perhaps, it sounds hackneyed to say that there's a dignity to work, but the reason it's a cliche is because cliches have so much truth in them. Um, If you want to get kind of uh, into the metaphysics of this, um, there was that funny uh, Greek guy, uh, Aristotle, long ago, who said that uh, human beings are social creatures, and we we suffer if we're not connected to society. If we're not, if we're men connected through work, through family, through our own communities, through religion or faith, uh, there's a reason that being um, uh, placed in solitary confinement in a penitentiary is considered by many to be a cruel and unusual punishment because we we can't flourish if we're not connected to our world. And being connected to the work world is critically important.
1: Well, that's a great segue into talking more about the work that you've done. And uh, here's a magnificently interesting little book, uh, Men Without Work, post-pandemic edition that you put together. Now, Nicholas, despite, uh, and I find this quite bewildering in a way, even having had years of involvement at the heart of economic policymaking, in in this country, we're now in a situation across the West where, despite the economic problems and so forth that countries face, unemployment is at record low levels in your country and indeed in mine, yet bosses everywhere are screaming for more work. You can't get... We're we're farmers. We can't get machinery attended to because they've got got backlogs, because because they can't can't get get texts. You go to a a restaurant in Sydney... We're closed on Thursday night. We can't get enough staff to run our normal timetables. And that's common to America as well. I know that. Uh, But while they're screaming for work, you've got a staggering number of American men of prime age, uh, working age, who are not making themselves available. And you've written that in early 2022, more than seven million prime age men. That's about the male workforce of Australia, by the way, were neither working Or looking for work, more than 11% of the prime age male man pool power pool pool, uh, are involved in this, 7 million men who can work, simply not working. What on earth are they doing with their days? Well, we have a good clue as to what they're
0: doing with their time, John, because they tell us about what they're doing with their days. There's a self-reporting survey called the American Time Use Survey, which our government uh, mainly deploys to try to figure out when people are working and for uh, commuting and things like that. But all adults are sampled for this, including this pool, still over 7 million, of uh, prime-age men, 25 to 54 years old. I mean you know, at the prime of life and at this critical period in the life cycle where they should be uh, forming families and raising children, Uh, of the seven plus million uh, workforce dropouts, about 10%, a little over 10%, are actually full-time students they're basically training to get back to work with uh, with a better job and better wages. And their time use does not look so, uh, so much different from employed men. But when you look at what uh, I guess in Britain is called NEET, N-E-E-T, do you say that also in Australia, neither employed nor in uh, education or training? When you look at that huge group of um, well over 6 million uh, prime age men, uh, The story they're telling about their lives is uh, really uh, pretty devastating. It's pretty distressing. They report they basically don't do civil society. There's almost no worship, almost no volunteering, almost no charitable work. Um, They've got a lot of time on their hands, but they report doing strangely little help around the home or help with other people at home. What they say that they're doing, John... They say that they're watching screens. These reports don't tell us what they're watching or what sorts of screens, but about 2,000 hours a year sitting in front of screens watching. Uh, 2,000 hours a year would qualify as a pretty good full-time job. Uh, And this is, uh, so to speak, their uh, full-time job. Um, What makes this look even more uh, distressing is every so often these surveys ask uh, these uh, male uh, workforce dropouts uh, about other questions. One of the questions asked right before before the pandemic was, uh, on the eve of the pandemic, uh, was about medication, pain medication. Almost half of these dropouts reported that they were taking pain medication every single day. Uh, not necessarily opioids, but pain medication every single day. So we have this self- Uh, self-painted tableau, uh, not just of spending all day long playing World of Warcraft uh, or Call of Duty, but playing World of Warcraft or Call of Duty stoned. Uh, That's not the way that you get back into the workforce. It may be the way
1: that you uh, prepare yourself for a death of despair, though. Now, You chart out in this um, something that's really quite staggering, that those numbers of of men who are neither in the workforce nor looking for work uh, is at historically high levels, even compared to what we know of the Great Depression years in America.
0: It's an astonishing thing, John, because if if you take a look at what the numbers actually reveal... Uh, instead of listening to the happy talk that we hear from uh, uh, Washington or the, our Federal Reserve, our Central Bank, or sometimes from Wall talk. Street, you, you find out that uh, we're mainly being given numbers that were created by an employment system designed to fight the last war. And the last war, of course, was the Great Depression, So we have a system that's very good at telling about how many jobs there are, very, very good at telling how many people are unemployed. When our labor statistics system was put together, I don't think it would have crossed anybody's mind that a a prime age man who didn't have a job wouldn't be looking for one. But we've had this slow but really uh, dramatic revolution in the post-war era in the U.S. at any rate, where, as we're speaking uh, this month, uh, the latest jobs uh, reports show that for every prime-age man in America who uh, doesn't have work and is looking for work, the technical definition of unemployed, there are over four guys who are neither working nor looking for work if you're not counting them, you're ignoring over four-fifths of the problem. And unfortunately, that's the way we've been proceeding. If instead, you just look at the work rate at the employment to population uh, ratio, you find out that the work rate for prime-age men in America Is lower than it was in 1940, when we started accurately measuring this stuff. Uh, Well, back in 1940, we were talking about the tail end of the Great Depression in the USA, and the national unemployment rate was almost 15%. So we have a situation in the United States of America today, where prime age men basically or have uh, great depression scale work problems. This is not being hyperbolic. If To be a little bit more tecul- technical, if you look at all of the 21st century from year 2000 to the present, the average proportion of men with no paid work is about a point and a half, a percentage point and a half higher than it was in 1940 when we started measuring this. So the 21st century has been kind of like a 1939 scale work problem for men in the
1: USA. That really is staggering. And as so often the public perception is a vastly different thing to what's really happening in people's lives. There has to be a major economic cost, you allude to that, and it shows up, despite the what you call the happy numbers, I think, Uh, you know, politicians everywhere bragging about the levels of employment and how strong the economy is, how well it's going. But we know in your country and indeed in Australia, that's not the on-ground experience. People feel that it's nowhere near as good as the politicians are telling us. On the ground, it doesn't feel well. Because what you're painting has to have a real economic cost. It means the American economy simply isn't performing as well as it should if those six or seven million men Of prime working age were actively engaged in the workplace. There has to be an economic cost, just as there's a big social cost. John, there's a huge economic cost.
0: I mean, part of the reason for the great discontent in my country today, uh, part of the reason for the plummeting trust in institutions, has to do with economic performance. Now, it is true that. Uh, with the help of uh, free money from our central bank and a few other little um, additional uh, bits of uh, ingredients, we've been able to generate an extraordinary amount of private wealth, although we haven't done it nearly as evenly uh, as you all have done in Australia. Um, If you look at the economic growth numbers in the US, they have been really troubling, uh, not just uh, not just during the pandemic crisis, not just uh, in the wake of the Great Recession, but for the entirety of the 21st century. In the U.S. Uh, nowadays, and by nowadays I mean in 21st century America, and we're now over 22 years into this, the average per capita growth tempo for the country as a whole has been barely over 1% per year over this entire long uh, span of time. On the real existing growth tempo, it will take 63 years for a doubling of per capita incomes. Uh, In other words, uh, it wouldn't happen during one's own work life. It might happen during your kid's work life. It'll happen during your grandchildren's work life. But this is a radical slowdown in economic uh, productivity from the previous half century, from 1950 to the year 2000. uh, The retreat or uh, flight from work by men is only one of a number of different factors, obviously, but there's nothing good that comes out of this flight from work by man. Slower growth, bigger income and wealth gaps, more welfare dependence, probably bigger public uh, public deficits, more pressure on fragile families, less social mobility, less social capital, less trust in our political institutions. There's nothing good that
1: comes out of it. Yeah, you were kind about Australia, but we have the same problem. High immigration is pumping GDP up, or has been, with an interruption from COVID to make the numbers look better than they really are. So the on-ground feel is worse. And buried in there, of course, is this real problem of the distribution of wealth. Young people can't get a start. Governments have been looking for inflation to devalue the debts they've built up, which are now more horrendous than ever. Suddenly, inflation's arrived. uh, And that's a whole story in itself, how to deal with it and the pain that that will cause. Uh, But the reality is that it's been there in asset prices, so young people find it very hard to get a start and to start forming a family. So we're on the same trajectory. Let me come to uh, one thing you touched on there, of course. Um, You've had a sugar hit in the economy, particularly out of COVID, and a massive amount of money pumped into the private sector, out of the public sector, the nightmare being, of course, that their borrowings against... You could say our children, but we might as well say now the unborn. We're not living within our means, and COVID possibly made it even worse. So there are economic and massive social ramifications out of this. I would have thought. You know, have we are we in danger of encouraging people not to work, to stay at home, to uh, expect somehow that society will support them? I don't want to be too cruel here. I just want to say, is there a danger of sending very bad messages? Let me talk about
0: the United States, because I'm uh, familiar with our situation here. Um, We have 4 million fewer people in the workforce today than we would have expected on pre-COVID trends, at the same time that we have this unnatural peacetime uh, labor shortage uh, by a curious coincidence, the jump in the number of unfilled jobs uh, was about 4 million uh, in comparison with uh, pre-COVID times. Uh, the reason that our uh, workforce is down this much, is below trend by 4 million, is not because of the catastrophe. I mean, COVID was a catastrophe in the United States. We lost over a million people in, COVID, in the COVID um, crisis. Most of those people, the overwhelming uh, majority of them uh, were beyond working age. Uh, There are some people in the United States uh, who are suffering long COVID and who say that long COVID is the reason they're not in our workforce today. And there are uh, hundreds of thousands of them, maybe 400,000. We're a big country. I mean, 400,000 is a lot of people, but it's not 4 million people, as I just mentioned. Most of the gap uh, that I've just described is due to the new face of the flight from work in America. It's not just the prime age guys who aren't showing up in the workforce. Uh, We have a lot of people over the age of 55, men and women alike, who were in the workforce before the uh, pandemic, who aren't now. We have prime age women as well who aren't showing up. Um, And I think you can't understand what's happened with the slump in uh, manpower availability, unless you look at the unintended consequences of our COVID relief policies. Uh, The government, not unreasonably, was afraid that the lockdown was going to bring a freeze-up of the economic system, maybe even a second Great Depression. They uh, opened up uh, they opened up all the stops in monetary and fiscal policy to try to prevent this from happening. And in fact, uh, maybe they couldn't tell this ahead of time, but they overshot the goal. Um, Through borrowed public money transferred to households through a variety of programs, uh, the U.S. uh, disposable income in 2020 and 2021 rose above trend. Uh, Americans never had as much money to spend as they had in 2020 and 2021. It's the only national economic crisis I'm aware of where personal uh, disposable income and purchasing power actually rubs. Um, Americans had so much money in their pockets during the COVID emergency that they couldn't spend it all, or they didn't care to spend it all. Our personal private savings rate more than doubled in 2020 and 2021. People banked these transfers. And the nest egg, just from the COVID transfers alone, apart from the wealth effects of zero interest rate policies, was just the the transfer. Nest egg was over two and a half trillion U.S. dollars, about twenty-five thousand dollars a household for uh, for persons at the at the bottom of the bottom half of the income distribution and the wealth distribution. Uh, that was a lot of money, and I think this helps to explain why so many people in the United States have taken vacations from the workforce or maybe gone into a premature and perhaps unsustainable retirement.
1: So they really, to put this really crudely, future Americans are paying for current Americans not to work. Oh, absolutely. Because it's borrowed money. I mean, mean, uh,
0: yes, public debt, uh, as long as the debt does not uh, get defaulted upon, and we haven't done that, uh, as long as as long as one assumes that the public debt is going to be paid eventually, it's a future tax on future workers uh, and in good measure on workers who haven't yet been born.
1: You and many others, Warren Farrell, David Goodhart in the UK, Victor Davis Hansen have highlighted the huge social impact of shifting manufacturing industries from America. It's always been seen by the rest of the world as a manufacturing powerhouse, particularly during the Second World War. And a lot of that's gone to Asia and to Mexico. Uh, part of the American psych, I think, going right back to Benjamin Franklin and the idea that Americans ideally should be a nation of farmers and productive people, This idea, if you're involved in farming and manufacturing motor cars and steel goods and uh, those sorts of things, shipyards had great sort of, uh, what would you call it, prestige uh, as uh, central to the narrative of who you were and who your country was. Do you think there's an element uh, of the economy evolving in such a way that that there's a a substrata of men who struggle to find meaning or purpose and a sense of vocation in the way job markets are emerging?
0: Well, Not uh, to be well, critical well, uh, of
1: what's happening, is to say, is it having an impact, though, on people's perceptions of the worthwhileness of their work? Going back to the first talk, first question of another uh, well, you know, value uh, there's, of
0: there's a lot that's been written on that, and um, certainly uh, one can make the argument that Men uh, may not be uh, quite as adept at the caring economy in uh, health, uh, in the health area, in education as women are. Um, there may be some truth to that, but I'm a little more cautious than some other people are about that argument. I mean. Uh, we, we, if you want to put it that way, we lost all our farm jobs before World War II. Practically, at this point in the United States, there are more uh, dry cleaning establishments than farms in the U.S. Uh, and we didn't have uh, we didn't have a men without work problem with the transition from farms to manufacturing. Uh, we've had a declining share of uh, manufacturing jobs. In the U.S. economy more or less since uh, the Korean War, and other countries have as well. We seem to be, um, we seem to have a larger share of our uh, prime age men neither working nor looking for work than many other countries that have gone through the similar decline in manufacturing, including Australia. I mean, for France or Canada or Sweden, uh, all have some of this problem, but not so accentuated as in the United States. And remember, um, manufacturing isn't the only uh, sector where you get to work with your hands in the United States. I mean, there's a whole um, there's a whole huge uh, segment of repair of machinery in the United States. All of the Uh, all of the stuff for homes and HVAC, all of the construction industry. We're short hundreds and hundreds of thousands of positions in the construction industry alone. And these are not all positions where you need to have an engineering degree. Uh, A lot of these uh, have as a skills basis, the skill of uh, at least initially, just showing up regularly on time, not stoned. At least at the moment, this is what you see all across the U.S. with this uh, labor shortage. So, I think that we've got we've got something else going on in addition to whatever sort of you know kind of like historical, um, you know, romantic idea we've had about farming and manufacturing. Now, to go to a slightly sensitive area
1: and. I should preface this by saying I know that we both believe in a helping hand for people in genuine need. So compassion is important. But I think you've written um, and we should always be prepared to you know, look after the, those in genuine need. But you've specifically mentioned the pernicious effect of disability insurance, what we might call welfare safety nets uh, more generally uh, in, in Australian parlance. Uh, upon many who who may be uh, relying on it perhaps more than they should, encouraged to think that um, it's it doesn't bring some moral responsibility to ask the hard questions: Do I need this? this? is is this fair to my fellow taxpayers, and so forth. Now, as I look at America, the traditional view is that um, Europe has a very uh, comprehensive, perhaps overdone, safety, welfare uh, networks. Um, Australia is somewhere in the middle. America is quite lean on those things. But in fact, you actually have a monstrous, a very big disability insurance set of arrangements. And they do seem, do you think they have played, as you put yourself, I think, that they're playing a role in contributing to unemployment by creating perverse incentives, which in the John, end I... turn out, of course, not to be a compassionate thing to do to people.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, John, I don't think that I or anybody else who plays with statistics can prove that our, our awful archipelago of broken disability insurance programs in the u s has caused this problem. What I can show pretty clearly and pretty incontestably is that our crazy quilt of disability programs is financing the now work um existence, the no work lifestyle of millions and millions and millions of men in this, uh, in this group that we've been discussing. Um, one of the reasons that it's uh, hard for academics and policy uh, types to wrap their heads around this in the U.S. is because our many, many different uh, disability programs uh, across the country don't play nice and talk to each other and share information with each other. I see. Uh, there's no place you can go in Washington, D.C. There's no office you can uh, walk into in Washington, D.C., where somebody can tell you the total number of people in the United States who are receiving one or more disability benefit from our social security archipelago, from our veterans administration, from uh, Workmen's compensation, from the state level programs. They don't, they don't talk to each other. When you put this together, though, or try to put it together, you find that well over half of the uh, men who are neither working nor looking for work are obtaining at least one of these benefits, and about two-thirds, or at least two-thirds, are living in homes that obtain one or more of these benefits. These benefits, I do want to emphasize, uh, do not allow people to live a princely existence. They're pretty penurious, but they do allow an alternative to being in the workforce.
1: Yes, it's challenging getting that balance right. I know only too well for two years in two decades in public life in Australia. Another really interesting thing that you, uh, you picked up on was that for, as we've said, for months during the uh, pandemic, governments around the world, and I think Australia may have almost led the pack in terms of the relative amount of money that we pumped back into the economy. Uh, we we were directly paying people not to work because we essentially had shut our own economies down. It's a very strange situation, and you know there were reasons for it, but it was very unusual, very strange. But you point out that in the American context, and I'm quoting here, Washington stumbled into a dress rehearsal for the universal basic income idea, the UBI. The government, uh, the idea is that the government pays all citizens a minimum income, regardless of work. It's been a dream of many who fear that technology will make jobs uh, very rare commodities indeed. I think we can draw some lessons though, can't we, out of the pandemic response that gives us into, uh, that it can give us a glimpse into the dangers of UBI? It seems that way to me, John. I mean,
0: yes, it was stumbling. It was very much fog of war. People were very frightened and they didn't know uh, what was going to happen from one week to the next in terms of the spread of the pandemic or the shutdown of jobs. But one of the improvisations, uh, which is uh, very familiar to Americans, was this $600 a week um, pandemic unemployment insurance benefit, uh, which was very, very broadly defined. Uh, you didn't actually have to be unemployed to get the benefit. You could be at work and also get the benefit. The, the income cut off for it uh, wasn't until you got up to about $100,000 a year in annual income, which you know, even in a time of inflation is a pretty good income. Uh, at the, At the peak, we had about two and a half times as many Americans obtaining the pandemic unemployment insurance benefit as we're actually unemployed. So that's why I say it was a sort of a dress rehearsal or a kind of a test drive for a sort of a, uh, a UBI in the United States. Now, um, there are people all over the world, uh, mainly uh, in academia and in development assistance and, uh, operations uh, in different countries, were big enthusiasts of uh, UBI. I think that it'll have many salutary properties. Um, if people in the United States uh, were using their free time to do volunteering or community gardening or, I don't know, learn Mandarin or uh, brush up on their Schopenhauer, uh, maybe there'd be an argument for how uh, paying people to have more free time would be a social good. But remember, we just talked about what the men without work were doing all day long is degrading. It's degrading to them. It's demoralizing to them. Would we really want to use taxpayer resources to buy more of that?
1: Yeah, understood. Um, Another quote from your recent uh, book, Men Without Work, which really, really jumped out at me, uh, was uh, this. The growing incapacity of grown men to function as breadwinners cannot help but undermine the American family. It casts those who nature designed to be strong into the role of dependence on their wives or their girlfriends, on their ageing parents, or on government welfare. Among those who should be most capable of shouldering the burdens of civic responsibilities, it encourages instead sloth, idleness, and vices perhaps even more insidious. Uh, And you go on to say that uh, it's uh, submersive to the American tradition of self-reliance, to the national ethos, arguably even, of our civilization. To to what extent, Nicholas, do you think that uh, this crisis in employment is also feeding a crisis in what might be called modern masculinity. I I run into young men who will openly say, I just don't know what is expected of me as a young man anymore. I'm confused as to who I should be and how I should behave. Well, um,
0: John, again, I don't know how things are in Australia, but if you talk to young men in the United States, not just young women as well, but young men, let's stick, stick with them. Um, I don't think there's ever been a time in the United States when guys have been as afraid as they are now. They're afraid of uh, starting families. They're afraid of uh, their own economic future. They're afraid of having children. They're afraid of making commitments. They're afraid of failing. Uh, And uh, part of what we Part of what we see, I think, with this crisis of work in uh, the United States is that they're also afraid of daring to maybe fail, of you know making the commitment, uh, you know making the effort to get out and get into the game. I mean part of what has happened here in the US at least, and I don't know how that is in other countries, is that we have seen the death of the summer job in my lifetime. Uh, When I was a kid, summer jobs were a thing for boys and girls alike for teens. And when you were 15, 16, 17 years old, you know, you'd earn some money, you'd have some, uh, some change in your pocket, you had a little bit more independence from your parents, maybe would help with school or with getting ready for college. Um, But it, it was It was empowering in all sorts of ways, including like learning about the battlefield of the the workaday world. Uh, Nowadays in the United States, only a tiny fraction of teens uh, ever have summer jobs. They, if they're well-to-do, they go into enrichment programs, or you know, on the other side, they go into remedial summer programs. And the net effect of this is that most young men in the United States don't have their first collision with paid work until they're well into their 20s. It's an extended period of adolescence, uh, kind of a Peter Pan sort of existence for too many of our young men. And no wonder, uh, no wonder, in a way uh, that uh, this thing that you've never had any contact with in your life, this uh, employment uh, thing, uh, may seem so imposing and scary if uh, if you haven't done it as a as a kid.
1: Can I um, can I pivot then to the fascinating work that you've been writing about population decline? Can you give us a bit of a picture of what's happening globally? I think the UN is still saying that global population will peak at around 11 billion. And they focus on Africa and the Middle East is still growing rapidly. But we learn, on the other hand, that China's population is in free fall. And there's a whole chunk of Western countries where population is starting to decline and will start to decline very rapidly uh, over the next decade, much faster than they are now. Uh, in fact, I think it may have been your term. We're actually looking at a depopulation bomb. May or may not have been your term. Can you give us a bit of a feel for what's happening? Sure. Sure.
0: Well, uh, as best we can tell, uh, total numbers in the world are going to be increasing for a while. But what we have been seeing over the last three generations, over the three post-war uh, generations, is a relentless march all across the world to childbearing patterns uh, that will result in below-replacement fertility, which is to say, not as many kids coming up to their parents' generation as as necessary to replace uh, that generation without immigration coming in, or without some uh, some sort of co- immigration compensation. So, uh, across the world as a whole today, something like three-quarters of, of our planet's population lives in countries with below-replacement fertility. Now, we're used to thinking of rich countries as having below-replacement fertility, and virtually almost all of them do, and almost all of them have for a while. But since you know that the rich countries only account for a very small share of the world's population, you couldn't get to three quarters of the world being below replacement, unless mostly this is occurring in low-income countries in so-called third world countries. And if you spin the globe, you see that all of East Asia is below replacement at this point. Um, Most of Southeast Asia. In South Asia, India is a below replacement uh, population now. Bangladesh is below replacement. Nepal is below replacement at this point. An awful lot of countries in the Middle East, in the Uma are below replacement. Um, Turkey, Iran, Morocco, uh, places you wouldn't necessarily expect. And then, of course, when you come to the New World, Mexico, Brazil, uh, and a number of other Latin American countries are also below replacement societies, as well as practically all of the Caribbean. So this is the wave of the future. And this has been a relentless trend. There doesn't seem to be any uh, uh, end in sight. Demographers don't have any good theory for how low things go. Uh, what demographers do is they look in the rearview mirror and they say, oh, we know it can go this low now. We know that, for example, last year, we know that in South Korea, uh, the population of South Korea uh, could end up with a, on a tempo of just 0.8 births per woman per lifetime, when you need almost three times that level for a society just to have stable population."
1: This, of course, uh, is something we're only just beginning to come to grips with, and it is going to profoundly reshape the world in a whole range of ways. There are many who would say, well, that's a good thing. You know, uh, I run into well-meaning people everywhere who think there are simply too many of us, um, and that for the sake of the environment and our future living standards and for a whole lot of other things, it would, this is a very welcome trend. There are some downsides, which you've highlighted, however. Uh, There are reasons to be quite concerned about these demographic shifts.
0: Well, I wasn't one of the people who was uh, alarmed by the population explosion of the the late 20th century. Because even when I was a young student looking at this, I realized what was really driving it was a health explosion. And you know, if yeah. you're going to have a population problem, I'll take a health explosion any day. You know, just the improvement in life expectancy, reduction in disease, uh, all of the good things that come with increased human survival. Uh, I think that there, uh, I think there's a lot of scope, even in a shrinking and aging world, for maintaining and improving prosperity. Uh, Given the possibilities of improved health, given the possibilities of improved education, of uh, having a good business climate and an intelligent approach towards uh, pragmatic uh, free market uh, economies and generating more knowledge. Uh, but there definitely are um, consequences to uh, population decline driven by sub replacement fertility. For one thing, the what I was trained to think of as a population pyramid, with lots of kids on the bottom and few elderly people on the top, kind of flips over, and uh, unless you do some very um, uh, adroit things with social policy, uh, you have the risk of having a sort of a Ponzi scheme going, where you have a chain letter that can never uh, that can never do a pay as you go for supporting an elderly population. Um, for another thing, unless you really make uh, lifelong learning a practice rather than a you know a, uh, a slogan people occasionally spout. Um, it's going to be very difficult to train and skill a gray labor force. but I think the really the most um, the most important phenomenon to bear in mind when you have a when you have uh, generations upon generations of uh, subreplacement fertility is that you have a revolution in the family where many, many people um, in practical terms, end up childless, end up not married or never married. And the human bonds that have been our social glue more or less forever start to become undone. And this takes us into a kind of a terra incognita, uh, which uh, gets us beyond the troubles that we can see with the head count, gets us into kind of the basic glue of society and questions about meaning and human existence.
1: The, uh, my wife was pointing out to me the other day, she'd read something that said that once a population goes into freefall the way it is, say, for example, in China today, it's a relatively short time span before most children do not have siblings and they don't have aunts and uncles, to your well, point about social glue and, and a sense of place in, a, in the smallest community, if you like, a, a family. So China is an
0: especially acute case here because they had this monstrous um, uh, government-administered population control program from 1980 until 2015, the so-called One Child Program, which was uh, really the the most ambitious totalitarian program that I think any dictatorship has ever tried to implement. uh, Lenin said, we recognize nothing private, but before uh, Deng Xiaoping, none of the totalitarians had tried to invade the family unit and reconstruct it this way. Uh, it looks like they kind of succeeded and not in ways that they expected to. Uh, since the end of that program, uh, there has been a collapse in births and in marriages in China since they ended the program. Uh, Births dropped proportionately by more in the last five years than they did during the terrible famine under Mao. Uh, Marriages much more, uh, and I think we we are uh, we are standing on a little hill where we can see some of the future that's coming in China, and we're going to we're going to see the atrophy. Uh, call it the collapse, but we're going to see the atrophy and the withering away of the extended family in China. Um, and as you know, the extended family has been the, family is the basic social unit everywhere, but family has been absolutely indispensable in Chinese civilization because it's been the Protection for the little people against the absolute government that's ruled them for thousands of years, and what happens next? Where is that protection going to come from? I don't think that we can see yet.
1: There are parallels in all societies, are there not? Uh, you know, the family unit is a place where you can retreat and deal with the problems of the world if it's functioning properly. Defend and love, uh, you know, those who are bruised by their external experiences within the walls of the the family can find, and all of that is breaking down to what... You've highlighted, you know, the conundrum that we don't really understand what's driving this everywhere. I mean, there are all sorts of reasons why Chinese, uh, young Chinese people are not now encouraged, uh, you know, they're, they're laughing at, it seems, the, you know, the Beijing's insistence that they go forth and multiply. And they're, you know, they're, they're just saying, you're making it impossible, we don't want to do it, and so on and so forth. But in the West, to what extent do you think this is a sort of social contagion that um, that children are all very well, but uh, one thing they are not is convenient? Uh, have we become somehow so self-obsessed, so keen to define ourselves by our career? Well, that's an irony, given that uh, so many are opting out altogether. Uh, by our standing with our peers, by our wealth, that somehow or other we're losing sight uh, of... of um, what would you call it, the, the, the desirability of having children, the richness that they bring, uh, that they're seen as a burden and an inconvenience, and if you must have them, they're there as a, a commodity somehow rather than something higher? Well,
0: uh, there is a great expert on all of these questions, Uh uh that i would defer to on any of those points uh um, named mary Eberstadt. and unfortunately <laughs> you don't have her you've got the consolation prize here so i'll try to uh stumble my way through some of this um, well, just to
1: make the point that, of course uh, you can find mary's uh, thoughts on these things uh, on this very channel uh, indeed a couple of months ago <laughs>
0: indeed indeed uh, so uh to the extent that social scientists have been able to come up with any good um, predictors for fertility levels uh, around the world. The best that they have managed to do is to show that that a predictor, that the best predictor for fertility in all countries that we've surveyed, in all times that we've surveyed, is how many children women say that they want. So who would have thought? (laughs) <laughs> you know that we're uh, that human agency has anything to do with the number of kids that people have. We'd know a lot more about uh, the role of men as well, but social scientists survey women on this question. So let's stick with that. Um, asking why the desired number of children changes radically uh, is exactly what we have to do to explain this you know, wholesale shift in Western countries to seemingly more or less permanent sub-replacement fertility. And there were, uh, in the 1980s, or two European uh, demographers came up with this idea that they called the second demographic transition. It sounds very boring and very technical, but at the heart of it, they said the change in uh desired family size in western europe which is what they were focusing on there they were from uh belgium and they were focusing on the flemish at that time has to do with a new mindset and a new ideology they called it self-actualizing we might call it autonomy uh the idea that we didn't want the uh the burdens and obligations of family life to get in the way of our becoming me, you know, of self, of self-actualization. Um, put, it, uh, put it one way or another, but that's pretty close to what you're seeing all through the West. All through the West, you're seeing a flight from family, which is really a flight by the strong away from the weak. Um, Unfortunately, the life cycle is pretty unforgiving. Everybody starts out pretty helpless and vulnerable, and pretty much everybody ends up pretty helpless and vulnerable on the other end. So there's a pretty basic contradiction there that uh, self-actualization theory can't
1: really help you with. That's a very powerful set of insights, isn't it? It goes to the issue, I suppose, that Jordan Peterson talks a lot about, of responsibility. Accepting, taking on responsibility, take on what you can, and be as noble as you can, and step up and have a go. But it's the opposite of self-actualization in a sense because it involves being other person centred. And the
0: and and the other part of this, uh, another component of this, John, is just what one sees in rising generations who are unfamiliar with family. Uh, increasingly unfamiliar with you know, babies in their own lives, with children in their own lives. It seems daunting and impossible to people who come from below replacement uh, settings uh, that they might be able to bear this responsibility for themselves. It seems frightening. There's where the richest, um, where the richest generations that the world has ever seen. We're the most populous generations that the world has ever seen. And yet we also seem to be the most lonely. <laughs> when there were fewer people in the world, there's never uh, uh, so much loneliness as there is today. And I don't think there was ever as much fear about uh, being in families and being committed to them.
1: It's an extraordinary place to have reached. Can I then pull this together with two very broad questions where you may have some thoughts? The first goes to what this might mean globally, because the massive shifts, as, as, as broadly speaking, I think it's true to say. I think it's 92 of the world's countries are now in population decline. And you've listed some astonishing examples. Uh, other parts of the world, uh, the population's rising very strongly. Um, That alone will lead to great shifts. The migration flows as Western countries bring people in from other parts of the world who have very different cultural perspectives. For example, the migrants to Australia on most social issues are far more socially conservative than um, their host uh, citizenry tend to be. Uh, That alone uh, points the way to differences. Sometimes, as France is seeing, they import a lot of social problems. So maybe a bit tough on France, but I think that's a fair thing to say. They've got areas of Paris where the police simply don't go uh, that are made up of um, uh, very unsettled uh, immigrant uh, and ethnic populations. Um, this will lead to a very different world, a major realignment. In particular, we worry about Russia, which is in grave danger of becoming just a middle power, uh, albeit equipped with the, what, the world's largest nuclear arsonry. That alone is, is, is very worrying. Uh, the Chinese must be very aware that they've probably peaked, that they will be more determined than ever, I suppose, to assert their muscle. Uh, any thoughts on what this might mean in terms of um, shifting global alignments and power patterns and influence?
0: There, there's an academic industry, a small academic industry uh, in international relations uh, called. Uh, Geriatric peace. And the idea behind these studies, uh, briefly, is that more elderly populations can be expected to be more risk-averse. Uh, they won't have as they won't have military commitments the way they have now because everything's going to be eaten up by uh, national pension commitments and health commitments. Uh, There may be something to that for some of the aging and shrinking affluent democracies. I don't see any reason we should expect uh, dictatorships or autocracies to become more peaceable as their populations age and shrink. Actually, if you're uh, if you're uh, in the business of running a dictatorship, and you see that your prospects for extending power abroad may be diminishing a generation from now, uh, you might want to act more quickly. You might want to be a little bit more aggressive, more quickly. So I, I can actually see I can see a good argument for the opposite that shrinking and aging societies uh, in uh, in realms where dictatorship's rule may cause increasing instability in our world, um, more broadly speaking, uh, there's going to be uh, there's going to be a big uh, push for migration internationally, I think, from the areas where population is still going to be growing very rapidly, that's mainly sub-Sahara. You can make the argument that there will be a big demand for caregivers and others in some of the rich shrinking societies. The trick there is going to be how well the rich receiving countries are capable of assimilating the newcomers into being uh loyal and productive members of their society i mean the united states as you know uh, we don't have an immigration policy we're in complete chaos we can't help but uh we can't help but attract motivated people to our shores for some reason i know that australia's got a much more uh pragmatic and effective immigration policy and uh in australia from what little i know it seems that you have the sort of the secret sauce which helps, uh, which helps make newcomers into loyal and productive citizens. Uh, continental Europe hasn't done uh, nearly as well as your country or mine in bringing its newcomers in to integrate, uh, integrate into society. You see, in many of these countries many of the continental countries, that uh, work rates and labor force participation rates are actually lower for the newcomers than for the uh, for the native-born. The idea that they were going to be bringing in newcomers to help them with their uh, postpone the crisis of the welfare state worked exactly the wrong way around in some of those cases. So I don't know what it is in Europe that is um, preventing some of these countries from doing better with, uh, with making immigration a success. Uh, but unfortunately, there's almost nothing you can read about this uh, to if you wanted to make things work better, because the subject is so politically sensitive, it is so incorrect, that people don't write about it and they don't talk about it. So they, they can't even build any learning about this.
1: Well, that's uh, concerning, I have to say, but to come right home then to a major issue for the globe today, there's no other way of putting it, (coughs) and that's your country. I remember when he was Prime Minister of Great Britain, Tony Blair, uh, making the observation in a speech to our federal parliament that sometimes our American cousins may seem a little unusual to us and even irritating, but there is no problem in the world today. That cannot be resolved without the involvement and engagement of the American people. And I thought it was a very interesting observation to make. We're very conscious of that in Australia today, as we see the arc of autocracy starting to look really quite threatening. We, uh, we hope and we assume and we trust that the Americans will be there if something goes wrong. That's a pretty common view around the world. So if I can be so crude, there are times when um, people love to hate the Americans until it goes wrong, and then they expect you to be there. I mean, that is reality. Uh, And uh, sometimes I think people behave quite badly in not appreciating the force for good that America has been since the Second World War in insisting on a rules-based international order and being prepared to defend them. But that brings you back to the American people uh, and the division that you've touched on, that the rest of the world talks about. America seems, you know, absolutely divided. As I look at it, I have to say, at least there are people putting up a fight for common sense and for thoughtfulness and for reason. But the question more broadly is, where do you think America might go? You finish your piece uh, on demographic decline with an interesting reflection on American history. You, uh, you write, uh, our amazingly resilient society has been revitalized more than once before and not by governments. Spontaneous, intellectually and spiritually disruptive ferment from within civil society might offer a homegrown American answer. And you mentioned in this context uh, America's history of great religious revivals or great awakenings. Um, There have been the times when we've seen America wake out of a great slumber, isolationism during the 1930s. Uh, Ironically, the foundation stone for uh, the American embassy in Canberra was laid in a ceremony the night before Pearl Harbour. There's a little reflection on the way through. Um, America has at times amazed probably even itself with its rise to greatness, with its turning around. So as we watch all of this ferment, is it too much to hope that America can pull together again? Because surely there is no material or factual reason why America has to go into decline in terms of the intelligence and capability of its people its resources its system of government it boils down to where individuals i think individual americans choose to take their country and who wins in the culture war who loses well
0: i'm i'm very optimistic about the american future i think we've got a i think we've got a formula that has worked extraordinarily well for almost a quarter of a millennium, and I don't think there's anything that has invalidated that basic formula uh, with respect to the future. We've lived through a very bad patch, and it's quite ironic. This bad patch began at the end of the Cold War, when the United States became more powerful in relative and absolute terms than any empire or any uh, golden horde had ever been before on the the face of the planet. And uh, we've had, uh, I think we've had an uh, unfortunate uh, measure of fecklessness during the sort of the sleepwalking time uh, where many of us have taken a sort of a holiday from history. Um, That's also been true in some of our domestic uh, politics as well. But but that that will pass, and I think that I think that we will see more familiar uh, more familiar. Uh glimpses of, of U.S. behavior as some of our uh, some of our options uh, f- uh, fall away. There, I mean, exactly the way you were saying that that you can uh, count on Americans to do the right thing, as Churchill said, after they've uh, exhausted all other options. We may be exhausting some of those options right now, and the history that you mentioned of religious uh, awakenings, as we call it in our country, I think is also quite relevant here. Um, uh we're we're not going to be going on a linear trend in this kind of uh, trajectory of anomie that we see at the moment this will come to an end and i think that uh, i think that good things will lie ahead
1: well thank you just as i was concerned you might confirm my my fear that uh, a cornered Russia or a China perceiving uh, that it's peaked might be more dangerous than countries that have a stronger belief in their future. I was concerned you might say that because I think, I think, frankly, that is my own view. Uh, but I am equally more, in fact more so, delighted that you, you hold that optimism. Uh, I'm a great admirer of the best of the American tradition and uh, I guess I'd say the world does need a, a functioning and cohesive America. Uh, as one of my guests once said, uh, there will be a, a global COP and you want the COP to be a good one. So from, from this Australian, thank you for your time and your insights. They've been invaluable and I've enjoyed it immensely. Uh, and uh, uh, here's to America finding great national unity and global purpose again.
0: Amen, John. It's a delight talking with you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to John Anderson Direct. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.